Well, good morning. I really appreciate everybody's presence this morning. Uh, as most of you know, but not all, uh, we are kind of in the middle of a series looking at the story of the Bible. It's really taken from a five-part the, the, the five-part study that is often used in helping convert people to Christianity. And we've taken this series, the five-part study, broke it down into ten lessons plus an introduction. So as you can see, we're, uh, we're in the midst of that, and we're looking today at um, the life of Jesus. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I want to say that whether you are a new Christian, whether you're a person that's been in the church for a number of years, or, or whether you're not a Christian, first of all, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need Jesus. Amen. That, that can't be overstated, and I hope that comes out in every study that we do, but you need Jesus both to proclaim Him, but to also live Him out in your life. And He ought to be a powerful force in the direction of your life, and if He's not being that, it needs to be that way, because you need, one day you will need to call upon Him as your Savior. Um, if you're a Christian, and you're faithful you probably know people out there that need Jesus. And hopefully with this series of lessons, and specifically this lesson, will give you some tools, will help you uh, in your endeavor to convert those people because that's an important thing to be able to do. And just as a general reference, just as from your own learning, if you're a new Christian, it's important because it gives you some context to understand the stories of the Bible and where everything fits. I want to look, this is a chart that we've looked at in every lesson in this, and the top line really tells you what the Bible is about. Listen, the Bible is about Jesus Christ. It is about God's plan to reconcile a fallen man Man fell from the relationship with God because of our transgressions, because of our sins. And the, the, the plan of the Bible is simply this, that I'm sending a way to make this right, to fix this broken relationship in the form of Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at the, the, uh, the Old Testament, and that's brought us up to the time that Jesus is here, and we're going to look at his life today. And then, of course, the Old Testament says he's coming, and then in the Gospels we read that he's here, and then finally as you look at the epistles, that they're telling you he came, and they're giving you evidence that that indeed did happen. And so the second set is really looking at the dispensations of time. We have the, the patriarchal dispensation, or what's known as the Age of the Fathers, it was a period of time where God just came to men and said, I want you to do this. You take your family and you build an ark. Or you uh, go and take your family to a new land and, and that will be your inheritance. So God gave men specific instructions and it was built around the family. And that lasted about 2,500 years until we got to Mount Sinai and God gave Moses a law. And that law was not for everybody, but it was for a specific nation of people. And that was the children of Israel. 
And that dispensation of time lasted approximately 1,500 years until we come to the time of Jesus Christ. And he comes and he gives us a new religion that's not confined just to a, uh, to a group of people or a nation of people, but would include all nations of people. And so then the bottom line kind of just gives you some, uh, some chapter and verses from the Bible that aligns with those periods. So I hope that makes sense, and it's, I think it's a great chart to give us some context for understanding this. So again, we're looking at, at the life of Christ today. Um, specifically, we're going to look at some prophecies. We're going to look at uh, his nature and we're also going to look at his mission today. Um, so we're going to go back here into Malachi. Dusty referenced this in his lesson last week. Now remember, this was the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament. And he spoke to the children of Israel, actually to the Jews, because the ten tribes that went to the north had already been scattered about by the Assyrians. And we have a remnant that come, came back from... Uh, from Babylonian captivity, and so Malachi is referencing those Jews, and he says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. Now, these Jews that heard that would have known that Elijah came a thousand years before. Elijah was a famous prophet that spoke to the ten tribes that went to the north to call them to repent. But now here, here he is a thousand years later saying, I'm going to send Elijah. They had to understand that he was going to send, that the Lord was going to send someone, not the first Elijah, but someone that would come in that same spirit and in that same power. And so he said, I'm going to do that, and it's going to be before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I believe that's a reference to Judgment Day. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So again, about 400 years before the time of Jesus, we hear Malachi, and then we have silence for 400 years. Nothing. Now, being the impatient person that I am, I'm sure that if I had been one of the hearers of the prophecy of Malachi, I would have started looking around the next day for Elijah. I think he's, he's going to be here any minute. But that's not how God works. That's not God's time. That would be my time, but that's not God's time. And so 400 years later, when he knows that time is right, he sends this man, John the Baptist, and it's recorded to us in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. And it says, And he, and the he is John the Baptist, shall go before him. Now the him usually when, they, when you reference Jesus, it's capitalized, but they didn't do it here. I'm not sure why. But this is a reference to Jesus. He shall go before John the Baptist shall go before Jesus. About, he was born about six months. He was Jesus' cousin. And he was born about six months prior to Jesus. And his ministry started before that of Jesus. And, and the, the idea was call the people to repentance. 
to make the way straight that he would be that once the messenger got here, he would be followed. John says it this way. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. So this is the message of John the Baptist to, to baptize and to call people unto repentance to get them right, ready for the message that would come shortly thereafter. So, as it says here in 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse number 19, so we have the prophetic word confirmed. What he means by that is we have prophecy, some 300 prophecies or so that were written about Jesus, and they weren't just written in the old law, but remember, there was a 400-year gap, so these people that wrote about it, 1,000, 200, 500, not, five, not 200, but 500 or 1,000 years or 1,500 years before about the coming of Christ, it would be confirmed in Jesus. And so Peter says it this way, and he said, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a, as a light that shines in a dark place. So you, you, you do well to seek that out. I'm going to give you an example. So I want you to think about uh, the U.S. currency. The U.S. dollar is the most widely used currency in the world. In fact, it's called a reserve currency because other countries use that in making transactions. And because of that, now we realize that there's a lot of money that's digital, but there's also a lot of money that's passed, especially outside the United States, in actual bills. Do you know there's about 14 different features of a US $100 bill that are unique, that are specifically in that, that make it difficult to counterfeit? Because, surprise, surprise, People would counterfeit money. They do counterfeit money. But it's difficult to do because of those 14 features that are unique. Even the very paper has a unique feel. It's, it's produced by a company called Crane & Company out of Dalton, Massachusetts. And the, the specific blend and process is proprietary. No one outside that company really knows how it's done because they don't want a counterfeiter to be able to counterfeit U.S. currency. So when you get a U.S. currency, when you get a dollar or a hundred dollar bill, you can have confidence, you can have a surety that that's the real dollar. It wasn't, it wasn't made in Matt Clark's bed, uh, basement. It was made according to the U.S. Mint. I mean, that's, that's how that's done. And so uh, we can have confidence in that. And so prophecy serves the same function. It's a seal of authenticity. And so we've been given these prophecies as a way to, to identify that's the one. Now there's a lot of people that claim to be the Messiah, but the fact that Jesus fit all of the, the components, it makes, it makes it obvious that he indeed was the very one. So again, we said there's about 300 prophecies 
that point to this, and we're going to just look at a few of them this morning. Obviously not all 300, that might get a little bit long. Um, let's start with born in Bethlehem. Uh, according to research, there's been about 50,000 people that are, have been born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a small town outside of Jerusalem. So if I go around claiming that I'm the Messiah, you can check my birth certificate and you can determine, you know what? This dude was born in Sherman, Texas. There's no way he's the Messiah. I would have to be born in Bethlehem. So out of the over 100 billion people that have lived here on this earth, there's only about 50,000 that are even initial candidates just from your birth. And because you don't control the city that you were born in, there's only 50,000 candidates we start with. So that, that was rare. Here's another one. Poor people in Jesus' day did not ride on donkeys. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have the luxury. You would, you would walk everywhere you went. We know that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem seven days before he was crucified, that he rode in on a donkey. And you know what's even more interesting? So let me just go with the, the, the numbers a little bit in that. So if we start with 50,000 possible, let's just be generous and say that maybe half of them rode to Jerusalem on a donkey. Probably not near that many, but let's just say that that's possible. So now we get down to about 25,000 potential candidates that could be the Messiah. Okay, so let me throw in just an extra. Do you know that Jesus came in on the very same day that the Jews were picking their lambs for the Passover? You know, the Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of the people from, from, uh, from Egyptian slavery. That was what the Passover was about. And they were to, on every, uh, once, a, once a year, they were to have a Passover celebration. And that Passover celebration was they were to pick out a lamb, and they would choose the best lamb they had for a sacrifice. This is God sending his perfect sacrifice to be, to be offered up some, on the exact time of the Passover and be sacrificed. And so, again, that's not a coincidence that that happened. That's just a throw in with the prophecy, but uh, another example. So how many were crucified? Well, again, uh, crucifixion only was practiced for about 500 years uh, during um, the Romans only practiced crucifixion for about 500 years and in that, in that time there were probably only about 10,000 so you think about the 50,000 that have been born in Jerusalem so only about one fifth of those would have, would have been uh, even born at the time of crucifixion and then if you consider so that takes us down to you know if you take take a fifth of that, that takes you to 5,000. And that's assuming that all of them were crucified. So if one in 10 were crucified, that would give you about 500 people that would meet our criteria thus far. And we've just gone through three prophecies out of 300, and we've whittled it down to very few. And so the next prophecy we look at is we know that Jesus was crucified amongst thieves. 
The Romans did not give you a choice as to who you were crucified with. And in fact, most crucifixions were for insurrection or murder. So it's, it's a bit unique that Jesus was crucified between two guys that were convicted of being thieves. That's, that's unique in itself. So again, if we go from 500, we would have to say that that would probably whittle our odds down to 1 in 50 maybe. I, I, probably even less than that, but again, we want to be generous. And so we might say 1 in 50. And then a, a, a final clincher here would be uh, he was buried in a tomb. And, and it was very rare, again, for a poor person, especially one that would be crucified. Typically, they took those guys off the cross and they either threw them on a, uh, it sounds crude, but threw them on a garbage heap or they, or they just put them in an ass grave. And that, that's how they were, their bodies were disposed of after a crucifixion because they were thought to not be worth, worth more than that. But here was Jesus' body was taken and put in the tomb of a rich man. So again, if you, if you, how many do you think that would be? What's the percentages there? Well, you get down to pretty small, maybe 10, maybe 5, but a very small number that it could possibly be. And in fact, let's go a little bit more, and let's just look at 48 policies. There's been some people, mathematicians like Dustin over here, that have done some calculations on this type of thing. And here's what they've come up with that the probability of a single person being able to meet even 48 of the 300. Again, we're, thinking, we're talking about the seal of authenticity here. What are the odds? 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, for us non-math people, it might help you to look at it like this. There's your chances. Most of us wouldn't build a, well, wouldn't buy a lottery ticket if those were our odds, because you're you're not winning. I I went ahead and highlighted this because that's the billions place. That gives you a sense for the number of people, and there would only be a one in that place, by the way. There's been about a hundred billion people, or a little more than a hundred billion people that have ever lived. And so if you just, every time you move over one place value, you're multiplying that by 10. So to have this happen randomly, you would have to have the entire population of the earth multiplied by 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. You can count all of that. I guess there's 143 zeros that are after that. So again, what are the odds? pretty much impossible. So let's get to the ones that are completely impossible. Jesus was born a virgin birth. Now there's not been another one of those. That's it. If you accept that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, then you have to accept that he was born of God. And that he was born as the promised Messiah and that he's the Savior of the world. You would have to accept that. I know there's a lot of people that, that would doubt things like this, but, uh, but again, it's recorded in history. 
And then finally, resurrection. This is something that, again, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. But yet, it's essential. And here's, here's something else, too. That if you're studying with a person that cannot accept that Jesus was born of a virgin and that he was resurrected from the dead because they don't believe in supernatural things, well, you know, maybe ask them to explain how they're walking, how are they talking, how are they breathing, because that's a pretty miraculous thing right there. And it took something miraculous to make that happen. And so the idea that, that God, who created the world, could cause a, a, a virgin birth and could bring someone back from the dead is, is not, shouldn't be surprising. Now, if, if I were to claim to be able to do that, that would be a bit of a problem. But again, we're talking about God and, and his ability and what he's done for us. So it says, For there is born to, to you this day in the city of David a Savior. That was a reference to Bethlehem. Who is Christ our Lord. John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and it dwelled amongst us. The Word, God, the Father's Word became flesh and it dwells amongst us. So let's look, just, just think briefly about the nature of God or the, the nature of Christ. First of all, we need to understand that, that Christ was fully divine. His nature was 100% divine in that of his, he, he had complete, a, a complete measure of the Spirit. In other words, there were no limitations upon his power that he could... He could pull people from the dead. He could heal the sick. He could, uh, he could understand what you were thinking or what I was thinking. He had, and he had full communication with the Father at all times. So he knew the Father. And he knew his will completely. 100% he was God. He was God upon the earth. But he was also human. He was fully human. He felt pain. He felt loss. He felt frustration. He felt agony. He felt, he felt everything that you and I would feel. He was fully divine, and yet he was fully human, which makes him the perfect advocate because he can, he can stand between us and the Father and he can say, I know what it's like to go through that because he's gone through the same emotions that we've gone through. He's done all of that. Jesus was fully human and he was fully divine. He's also eternal. You know, some people get the idea that Jesus was just born and he came upon the scene when he was born. But the reality is much different. It says in John chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, the, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. A lot of times we will use Jesus as separate from God. 
But the reality is, is he is God. He's not just, he doesn't just answer to God. He and the Father are connected, but it's equally proper to refer to Jesus as God as it is to refer to, to the Father as God. He's also creator. In John chapter 1, verse number 3, all things were made through him. So think about in the creation of the world, Jesus was there. Doing what? All things were made through him. And without him was nothing that was made that was made. He was in all of that. He was part of all of that. It wasn't something where he just came on the scene here uh, just in the, in the last few generations. Uh, he is God. And it says it this way in Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That was Jesus. So his mission, what was his mission? His mission was to come and to save that which was lost. Luke 19 and 10 says that for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, I would ask if I were studying with someone that was considering being a Christian, I would ask who is lost. And hopefully that the person, if they're honest with themselves and they haven't claimed Jesus Christ and been baptized for the remission of their sins, they would, they would acknowledge that they are one of the lost. And hopefully this would, this would create a spirit within them that would cause them a desire to seek to be saved. Matthew 26, verse 28 says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You know what remission means? It means deliverance. Deliverance from sin. Cleansing your sins. Making you right with God again. Even after all your transgressions and all the things that you do, you can still be made right because of Jesus. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. This is a reference to that time. He was instituting the Lord's Supper. And he did this while he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And that was a celebration of the, the deliverance from the Jew, of the Jews from Egyptian bondage. And he says that I'm doing this, but you can be delivered not from slavery from another group of people, but from slavery to sin. So he also says this. He says in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Remember our chart back we looked at? We're going to look at it again here in just a second. But he's the mediator of a new covenant by the means of death. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while a testator lives. You think about a last will and testament. That, that last will and testament does not come into effect 
until the person that wrote it dies. And that's what happened here, is that as, this, as Jesus died and was arose from the grave, the, the New Testament, which replaced the Old Testament, came into existence. So he brought in a new covenant. And that's what we see right here at the cross, the age of Christ, the world religions, which has gone on for approximately 2,000 years. And we go on to the end of time. Will that be another 2,000 years? Will that be another 1,000 years? Will it be another 100 years? 50 years? We don't know. But we know that that religion will go on. He brought that covenant that we will be under because it, it allows us to have relationship with the Father. And then finally, he came to build his church. In this passage in Matthew chapter 16, it says uh, that he came in the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said that some say that thou art Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some say that thou art John the Baptist. He said, But who say ye that I am? And Peter said that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to that, he says, I say also unto you, Peter, and upon this rock, and the rock was that confession of faith that Peter had made, he said, upon this rock, this confession of faith, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, so Peter, as he opened up the church in Acts chapter 2, and he, gave, he delivered the first gospel sermon, and then at the end of that, these men who had realized that they had been guilty of crucifying the Son of God, they, they hollered out to him and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for remission of sins. Receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And in verse 47 of that chapter, what happened to those that were saved? And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Where were the saved? The saved were in the church. So we leave this morning with just asking one question. If the Lord added to the church, where are you this morning? Are you a member of his kingdom? I want to encourage you. If you're not a member of his kingdom, you need Jesus. You need to be a member of his kingdom. If you're in his kingdom and you're not functioning the way you know you need to, to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, this would be a good time to get that right. If you know people out there that need this message, don't hold back. Listen, if, if, if you had a good friend and you found a product that you believed in and they could benefit from that product, would you hold back? You wouldn't hold back. You'd tell them right off. You'd, you'd be excited and you'd tell them what all the wonderful things that this product would do for them. Why do we treat the gospel differently than that? It's just as exciting. And it can do them more good because 
that product that you share eventually will rotten and not be worth anything. But their relationship with Jesus will be sometimes, one day, the only thing that really does matter. So this morning, if the church can help you in any way, we're going to sing the song of invitation. We would encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing together.